Well, if you do have your Bibles, Nehemiah chapter 13. I, uh, I told you last week I was going to start a series on the Sabbath, and we were going to do it until we figured out how to do the Sabbath correctly. And the Lord corrected me on Monday uh, and kind of slowed me down a little. I'm, I'm kind of an all-in kind of guy, so I'm like, we need to do this, let's do it now. And then I got to thinking about it. Maybe I should like pray and study and then come with a series instead of like building the airplane in front of you guys up here. So what we're going to do instead is, by the grace of God, we're going to finish Nehemiah. Uh, every summer I take a, a break from preaching. I take six weeks off uh, from preaching. I'm not taking a break from work. I'm studying for the next preaching uh, season. And then like I do a lot of stuff I don't normally get to do. Like, for instance, last summer I rebuilt our church's website. Little stuff like that I don't normally have time to do in the office. Uh, and so what I'm going to do is during that six-week break, I'm going to spend time studying on the Sabbath uh, as well as what's coming up. And then we'll do a series on rest when I come back. But what we're going to do in the meantime is finish the book of Nehemiah because we have been in exile almost as long as the Israelites. And so we're going to try to finish Nehemiah. I've got a few sermons left. Uh, we've got Mother's Day and Father's Day coming up. So I want to come back to uh, the text we looked at last week, but from a different angle. I feel like I covered through verse 18 pretty well. I kind of gave you guys the feel of what they probably felt when Nehemiah came in and started yelling at everybody. I started yelling at you guys so you would feel what they felt. And, uh, but what I want to look at now is the end of it, verses 19 through 22. And I want to look at something that's very important for Christian theology. And something that is often uh, missed or misunderstood by Christians. And that is the difference between the law and the gospel. And how these two things work together. The law is anytime we read in the Bible, God telling us to do something. It is a command. Here is what you need to do. When I say you need to do this, I'm giving you law. Gospel is not that. The, the law is not the gospel. Gospel is what God has already done. Gospel is good news. So the difference would be, law would be like, uh, you guys need to pick up your guns and fight because we are in the war. Gospel is, the war is over, you can put down your guns. Everything is finished, everything is done. Now these two are not opposed to each other, they actually work together. And so I want to try, and this is very difficult, but I'm going to try to show you how the two actually work together. How the love of God, the grace of God, works with the laws of God. And what we see in this text is actually three things that show us what when we are not using the grace of God to try to motivate the people to do the law of God. And that'll make more sense here in just a minute. But first, as always, I want to pray for us as we begin. Uh, in my own private, quiet times, I often read through the lectionary, which is what uh, the, the church around the world reads. And this week in the lectionary, the third Sunday after Easter, they're focusing on the story of the road to Emmaus, where Jesus comes and he enlightens the eyes to these disciples so that they see him for who he truly is. And as I read verses 44 through 45... It really struck me that this is what I'm hoping happens every time I preach. Every time I preach, I'm not just trying to give you a TED Talk. This is not a public speaking event. Uh, if that were true, you could find better speakers everywhere else. What I am hoping is that Jesus shows up in our midst. And that as we open God's Word, you would see Him. And that is my only hope as a preacher. So let me read this for you and then I'm going to pray. Uh, this is Luke 24, 44 through 45. It says, He, He being Jesus, told them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Jesus, would you do that for us? God, as I preach these scriptures today, I pray that you would open our minds. God, I cannot open the minds of the people. I cannot help them understand these things. Only you can. These are not things we can understand with our flesh. We're talking about spiritual things. And so we need your Holy Spirit to show us what we need to see. God, would we leave this place with a greater understanding of who you are? God, we love you and we praise you. Amen. 
Now, the law has a very good purpose in God's plan. If we use the law, how we are supposed to use it? And there's three ways that we are to use the law. There's a threefold purpose. The first use is that it is to make us aware of our need for salvation. When we try to keep the law, we cannot do it. And what that ought to do is make you go, I need a savior or this is never going to work out. It's a lot like me with calculus. Uh, when I went to college, I knew really quickly I was not going to make it. I knew I was going to be a college dropout my first math test because I got a four on the test. A four out of 100. And the reason why I got a four is because he felt bad for me, so he gave me four points for putting my name on the paper. I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, calculus to me, it sounds like a disease first off, doesn't it? It sounds like something the doctor would give you. you know, I, got, I came down with calculus this week. You know, it's, it's a terrible thing. And I have no idea. I did great in math when it was one plus one, two plus two. But then they started putting letters in math. And then they started putting theories in math. And I'm like, what, what even is this? This is not even math anymore. And I had no idea what was going on. And here's what I know about me. I didn't need a second chance at that test. There was no amount of second chances that would have gave me enough time to pass that test. I could still be in that college classroom right now and not be able to pass that test. It's just not in my nature to pass a calculus test. This is how we are supposed to feel when we come to the law. And when you look at the Ten Commandments, if you're like, I nailed it, 10 out of 10, something's wrong with you. Because you should look at the Ten Commandments and say, I break all of these every single week of my life and I cannot fulfill them. So if my standing before God relies upon me passing this test, I'm never going to be good enough before God. That's exactly what the law is supposed to do. Because what the law says is that Jesus came and he took the calculus test for you. He passed it completely. So that's the first thing we use the law for is it shows us that we need salvation. The second use of the law is that it's supposed to maintain society. When we have uh, kings... Uh, and governments that actually kind of think that God exists and that God's word exists, they can use the law of God to create their own laws. And what it does is it restrains evil. So I can tell people, you ought not murder babies because they're God's babies. I can tell you, you ought not murder anybody. You know why? Because they're God's people. I, I can use God's law to restrain evil in society. That's the second use. The third use is that it is for those of us who are Christians. It, it gives us a rule of life, if you will. It shows us the pathway, how we are to live our lives. So the Ten Commandments still are good for us to go after. You should stop lying. You should keep the Sabbath holy. You should do these things because God has told you to do them. Not because you're trying to earn His love, but because you have His love. When we use the law in these three ways, it is very good. But what happens is often is we try to use the law to motivate or to make people fear God so that they will keep His commandments. And the law can't do that. The law cannot force you to keep God's commands. The law will fail miserably in that way. Uh, what we need to get us to motivate us to keep God's laws is love. It must begin with love. That's why the first thing we put on the, the sign when you walk out of here is love Jesus. That's what I'm trying to get you to do. If you love Jesus, everything else will begin to fall into place. But if you don't love Jesus, if you have no love motivating you, there's no way you'll be able to keep the laws of God. It's too hard. It's too tiring. And even if you do keep them, guess what? You'll become a self-righteous punk. Because you'll think it's all about you. If you're not motivated by love, it does not work. You, you can think of the law and you can think of love uh, kind of like a, a river and water. Uh, a riverbed and water, rather. Uh, see, often we think of love and law working against one another. Like we think if uh, we're going 72 miles an hour and a cop pulls us over in a 65 speed limit, uh, that the, the, the cop has every right to go by the law and give me a ticket. But what are we hoping for? We're hoping the cop has a little love in his heart. And he'll say, you know what, I'm going to let you go this time. That's kind of what we think about when we think about law and love. But that's not true at all. They actually work together. It's like a water in a riverbed. It, if the water is love, 
which I think it is, then what you're going to find is if you don't have a riverbed, if you don't have structure to keep it in line, what happens? You have a flood, and it's completely destructive. If you want to know what love without guardrails looks like, look at our society. Everybody talks about love. Everybody, Christian or non-Christian, you ought to love people, love this, love that, and yet nobody can define what love is. And so what happens? Complete and utter destruction. We need God's law to help us understand what love is. It is the guardrails. If I say I love you, I need to be able to define that love. And the way I define that love is by looking at what God says is love. But on the other hand, if we have a riverbed, if we have the law down perfectly, but we have no water, what do we have? We have death. You don't see very many people fishing at a dried up creek. You know why? There's no life there. And I'm sure you guys at some point or another have been around Christians or you've been around in a church where they had the law down very good. And the guy, the preacher stood up and he preached a sermon from the Bible. They sang songs about Jesus and the blood of Christ. And yet you look around and it's like a librarian convention. You know, everybody's dead. Nobody's excited about anything. You don't know if they're at a wedding or a funeral. Uh, they look sad. You know, it's, it's like, what is going on here? Well, they have the law down, you know, the, the, but it's dry. There's no life and there's no force. There's nothing to, to help the people move along in their walk with Christ. So what I want to do now is look at this text and we're going to see three ways, you know, if you're trying to motivate yourself without love, three ways, a pastor or a parent can try to motivate people without love. And all three of these things ultimately fail. And that they're the things that Nehemiah is trying to do. So the, the first of which that we see Nehemiah do is he tries to build walls and we do the same thing. When we're trying to force somebody to do something that is against their nature, we build walls. Look at Nehemiah 13 verse 19. It says, when shadows began to fall on the city gates of Jerusalem just before the Sabbath, I gave orders that the city gates be closed and not opened until after the Sabbath. I posted some of my men at the gates so that no goods could enter the Sabbath day. So, so what is he doing? He's saying these people can't stop doing this thing, so I'm going to force all of the world out. Uh, it's kind of like uh, with my dogs. My puppy right now is locked up in a cage. You know why? Because I know it's in his very nature to chew on everything he should not chew on. And every time we come home, he's chewed on something new he should not chew on. He has no ability to change his nature. You know why? Because he's a dog. So what I have to do is put him in a cage so that he does not chew the things he ought not chew. Uh, you know, it's, and, and we could do the same thing with the law ourselves. I, I can build a whole bunch of things around me and kind of quote unquote have freedom without really having freedom at all. You can think of it in this way. It's like an alcoholic who is sober, but he cannot even be around the communion wine without going on a binge. Now, the man may be sober for a year, two years, three years, but he is certainly not free. If he cannot be around alcohol at all without going on a binge, what he has is he has law. He has restrictions all around him. The man who is free does not drink alcohol. You know why? Because his desires have changed. From the inside out, he has been cleaned. And I'm not saying that there's not a time for law, because before we are transformed, we need the law. We need to keep ourselves from these destructive things. But the law was never meant to be what God ultimately wanted for you, because the walls ultimately will fail you. You can think of it this way in parenting. Uh, a lot of parents, the way that they decide to protect their children is by building walls around them. We're not going to watch rated R movies. I'm going to pick your friends for you. We're going to homeschool you. You're going to churn your own butter. Uh, we're, we are going to keep you from this destructive world. And when they're younger, that's your job as a parent is to build walls. Like you don't want your four-year-old going around watching rated R movies. That's just not what you're supposed to do. But as they get older, if you don't give them freedom, if you put bubble wrap around them morally, what then happens when you, which is the wall, falls away? They go nuts. 
We've seen this over and over in society. You know why? Because they had nothing within them that wanted to keep the law. It was all about restriction. It was all about walls. And walls never ultimately work. This is what Nehemiah tries to do with the people. The second thing that we see Nehemiah try to do is he tries to use force. He goes a little MMA on these people. Uh, verse 20, it says this. Once or twice in the merchant, once or twice the merchants and those who sell all kinds of goods camped outside of Jerusalem. But I warned them, I warned them, why are you camping in front of the wall? If you do it again, I'll use force against you. And they did not come back again. They did not come again on the Sabbath, which I think is funny. I will use force against you. And they're like, okay, we're not coming back again. Uh, I I kind of imagine this being how it is when uh, Blakely's boyfriend brings her home for the first time five minutes after curfew. There will be words that are said. And my prayer is that we will be able to say in the postscript, and the young man never brought her home after curfew again. That's kind of the idea behind the text here. Nehemiah is laying it down for them. This is what you will do, or I'm going to use my strength and overpower you so that you don't do it. And again, this is a great illustration for parenting. Because so often, how do we as parents get our kids to do what we want them to do? We use force. You will make your bed. And the reason why you will make your bed is because I made you, and I can destroy you and make another one just like you if I want to. So make the bed. This is, this is how we do it often, is it not? And the reason why we have to force our kids to do that is because there's nothing inside of them that wants to make the bed. If you had a weird kid that loved making his bed, I just can't wait to make my bed. You would never have to tell him to make his bed. It would already be done every morning. Uh, think of my uh, little cousin, Ellie. Uh, she loves washing her hands. And it's, it's really, I don't know if she still does, but she went through a phase where she loved washing her hands all the time. And I thought, that is so cool. You don't ever have to tell this kid to wash her hands after she's sticky. You know why? Because she wants to. She's already over there washing her. You have to tell her to stop washing her hands to get her to quit doing it. Why? Because of internal desire. But when you don't have internal desire, when you don't have water going through the riverbed, when you don't have love motivating, what do you have to do? You have to push it along. You have to force the people to do that which they do not want to do. And friends, I just ask you, when you come to God's word and he tells you to do some things, when you come to the commands, are there some commands where you feel like you have to force yourself to do them? You feel like you have to force yourself to be here on some Sundays? You feel like you have to force yourself not to lie or force yourself to be a good husband, force yourself to be a good wife? If you're anything like me, the answer is yes. You know why? Because there's still a lot of flesh that is inside of me. And I know the areas where grace has not touched me yet because those are the areas where I'm trying to force myself to do things that I don't want to do. What I ought to do isn't what I want to do. And I know that God wants those two things to be in alignment with each other. He wants what I want to do and what I ought to do to be the same thing so that the river is flowing in the right direction with the law. So that's number two is that he uses force and Number three is that he gives more law. So the first two uh, are, are that he builds walls and he uses force. And number three is that he gives more law. The, the first law didn't work. They weren't obeying it. So what does he do? He gives them more instructions. Verse 22 says, Then I instructed the Levites to purify themselves and guard the city gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Now you can know that this is law and not gospel. Why? Because he says, Then I instructed I instructed, I gave them a commandment. I told them to purify themselves and guard the city gates. Now, the church is notoriously bad for this. And as a pastor, I often am guilty of this as well. To get you to do something I want you to do, I will give you another instruction. I I, I will try to lay more law on you if I am not careful. 
Uh, so, for instance, if you struggle to get, on church, get to church on time, I can give you more law instead of trying to help you love Jesus more so that you want to be here on time. I can say, well, why don't you set an alarm clock? But what am I doing? I'm giving you another instruction. Now, again, for parents, because God is our Father. So I think it's just the greatest illustration that I can give you this morning. But as a parent, if your kid struggles, your teenager struggles to show up for curfew at 9 o'clock at night, making their curfew 8.30 is probably not going to help very much. Why? Because they couldn't obey the first law. So why would you think that they would obey the second law? And yet this is what our heart naturally desires to do. There's two things about the human heart that I find interesting. They seem opposite, but they, they really are true of both of us. And number one is that we hate the law. We rebel against it. It's why when you're a little kid, you don't like taking naps. And then when you're an adult and nobody's telling you to take naps, you want to take the naps. No, the real reason is because you don't like somebody telling you what to do. You rebel against the law that is given to you. If the speed limit was 80 miles an hour, I would go 85 miles an hour. Well, I already do. But uh, no matter what they set the speed limit to, I would break it. You know, I don't like being under your stinking laws. I want to rebel. There's something in my heart that's broken. But on the other hand, the human heart also loves laws. It's why the sermons I preach from Proverbs are some of your guys' favorite sermons. When I just lay it down clearly to you what you are supposed to do, you love it. You eat it up. You know why? Because when we are struggling with something, we want to think that we can fix it ourselves. And so, Blake, just give me the checklist. Just give me step one, two, three, four, five to fix my marriage, and I'll do the five steps. I want the law. We desire the law. So the, one of the best-selling books last year was a book by a guy named Jordan Peterson who wrote a book called 12 More Rules for Life, uh, which is a follow-up to his 12 Rules for Life. You know why it's a bestseller? Because we love the law. But I saw an interview with Jordan Peterson uh, with a, a comedian, and I thought something he said was actually really uh, insightful. He, he said, Jordan, I love your books. This is great, man. But can you please stop writing books? Because if you give me any more rules, I don't know what I'm going to do because I can't even follow the first 12 rules that you gave me, much less the next 12 rules you gave me. And see, that's so true about the human heart, isn't it? We love it. We love it when somebody tells us what to do, but then we can't keep it. You guys know what it takes to lose weight. You guys know what it takes to get in shape. Most of you would tell me at least, like, I would kind of like to be in shape, but most of us are not in the best shape. Uh, and I speak for myself first and foremost. It's not because I don't know what to do, because I don't want to do it. And yet, what do I do? I go to the internet and I try to find more law. What do I do? What diet should I eat? What workout should I do? And I think that more law is going to help me. It's never going to help me. The only thing that would actually help me is if I had an internal desire that overcame all of my objections and I wanted to be in shape. I wanted to go to the gym. I wanted to run and not be chased by something. That would be the only way that I would actually then get into shape. The law is ineffective. So what is effective? Well, what is effective is love. And what I find really interesting about this text is there is one guy who is very passionate about God's law, very passionate about keeping God's commands. And that man is the man trying to force everybody else to do it by law. But look at what it says about Nehemiah. Uh, at the end, Nehemiah prays this prayer. He says, remember me for this also, my God, and look on me with compassion according to, and you would think he would say here, according to the way that I keep the Sabbath like all these knuckleheads don't. Or you'd think he would say, according to my goodness, or according to all the effort I have put forth for these people. But that's not what he says. He says, remember me according to the abundance of your faithful love. This is gospel. Nehemiah is following God's law because he loves God. He's a man who's been transformed by love. It is love that has forced him to do these things. He is compelled by the love for God within him. And this is what God wants for you. 
This is what God wants to do. He wants to change your nature so that the things you want to do are the things that you ought to do and that you hate the things that you shouldn't do. Uh, Becoming a father has made me realize I didn't know a lot that I thought that I knew. For instance, I thought I knew what being tired was. I did not know what being tired was uh, until I had a baby that woke me up every two hours. Uh, I thought I had a pretty good idea of what projectile vomit looked like. I did not. How something so little could just, with so much force, make so much milk go everywhere, it blows my mind even to this day. And what happens when Blakely projectile vomits is immediately it goes on the floor, and no more than three seconds after it's hit the floor, both of our dogs are there licking up the puke. Now, it's gross. I know that it's gross. And at first, I tried to tell Bella no, but then, you know, after you clean it up so many times, you're kind of grateful for the dogs doing it. Why, why does my dog do that? Because she's a dog. It's in her very nature to like disgusting things like that. The only thing I could do to change that was if I had some kind of magical power and I could snap my fingers and turn Bella into a human. Now, if Bella was licking up that puke and I snapped my fingers and turned her into a human, she would immediately be disgusted with herself. Why? Well, because when you're a human, you have a different taste. You have a different flavor. You desire different things. Here's what the gospel is, friends. Jesus did not just come to make you better. He did not just come to give you a second chance. He came to completely change your nature so that those things that you used to desire now disgust you. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't run back to my old sins because like a dog that returns to his vomit, I still have flesh. My spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And I find myself back there licking up the vomit that's on the floor that I ought not lick up. But you know what's different about it? Afterwards, I feel ashamed about it. I feel disgusted with myself because that's not what I really want. My desires from the inside out have changed. This is what God wants for us. And the way that he does that is through his love. And the way that we experience his love is by seeing his grace. That's exactly what happened to Nehemiah at the end of verse 8. In chapter 1, at the very beginning of this, it says, The king granted my request for the gracious hand of my God was on me. See, the reason why Nehemiah had been changed was because he had experienced the grace, the undeserved favor of God on his life. Friends, every single week when you come to Ascent, you know what I'm trying to do? I'm trying to remind you that as God's people, you have grace, undeserved favor on your life through Jesus Christ. And there's a way in which you can show up and hear me say that and learn about the gospel without actually experiencing it. But there's also a way in which when I preach the word, something supernatural and spiritual happens and you hear it as being for you personally, that these things are true. And I'm not giving you instructions. I'm pronouncing something over you. And that completely changes everything when you understand that. Uh, we look at 1 Peter 1, 23 through 25, and it says this. He says, you have been born again. You have a new nature, not a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers. And the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word, this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. That's good news. Now, I read it to you. Did any of you guys have any kind of spiritual moment where you had chills running up and down your spine? You know why? Because you heard me read it, but you didn't experience it for yourself. He says that you have been born again. It's already over. You are holy. You are pure. You are loved. Everything that needs to be done for you has already been done for you. 
The only work we have left, Jesus says, is to believe. This is exactly what happens in John chapter 6. People like us, we love the law. And so they come to Jesus and they say, what do we do? What good works do we need to perform? And here's what Jesus says. He says, or this is what they say to him in verse 28 verse. It says, what can we do to perform the works of God, they ask. Verse 29, Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. This is your work today. Believe that what I said was true for you. It's kind of like if you were to get on an airplane and you were to go to the pilot real nervous and say, Mr. Pilot, I really want this plane not to crash. I don't even want to be on this plane. My wife made me buy the ticket, so here I am on the plane. What do I need to do to make sure that this plane doesn't crash? Well, what the pilot's probably going to tell you is to say, just go sit down and relax. And please do not do anything crazy on the airplane. Because as long as you trust me, we're going to be fine. I'll do all the work for you. All I need you to do is trust me. The only way that you don't get there safe is if you jump off the plane before we land. As long as your belief and trust is in me, everything is taken care of. And this is exactly what Jesus Christ is asking us to do, to believe it. Now you say, Blake, okay, if I just believe that it is true, how does that actually help me follow God's laws? How does that, how does that show me God's love? How does that actually transform my life? Because for me, a long time, the gospel was confusing to me because somebody would tell me what to do. Blake, do this, 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 and this. And then they would say, but Jesus has done it all for you. The gospel grace is there. There's nothing for you to do. And I'd be like, well, then what do I do with all the this, this, and this that you told me to do if there's nothing for me to do? And it got me all wrapped up in knots. But what you need to see is that the grace is what transforms us. So I think a good illustration, it's an illustration I've used before, but I, I can't think of anything that illustrates this better. And if the band wants to go ahead and come forward, I'm coming to a close. I, I think of my friend... Uh, uh, Daniel, who he gave me permission to use this story. Daniel adopted a kid from foster care uh, a few years ago. And the little boy came from a home that you and I probably can't even imagine. Uh, his parents had completely neglected him to the point to where they were eating honey buns for dinner. Uh, they had a sibling that was so sick from an ear infection that the baby almost died in the hospital. I mean, just total and complete neglect. So these kids obviously had a lot of issues. And uh, my friend brought in this little boy at the time, four or five years old, and he had a lot of violence and anger. Uh, so much so that he would just tear things up. He was very disrespectful to my friend's wife. Uh, it, it, was, it was a bad situation overall. And it all kind of came to a head on one day when my friend was at work. His wife was at home with the little boy by herself. And he just went nuts. Started pulling her hair. He was tearing things up, spitting in her face. And she called her husband. She said, you've got to come home and help me. I do not know what to do with him. And so he said, hang on just one second. I want you to lock him in his room, and I'm going to be right there, and I'll take care of it when I get there. So she put him in the room, locked him in his room. And when my friend got there, he said he opened the door, and he couldn't believe what he saw because the kid had completely destroyed everything that they had given him. He flipped over the bed. He had punched holes in the wall. All the books were on the floor. Everything was torn to pieces. And my friend said, I had no idea what to do. And he said, I just prayed to God. And he said he felt like the Holy Spirit told him, all you need to do right now is take this little boy on a walk. And he said, that seemed like a good thing to me because if I would have tried to spank him or discipline him, it would have went completely wrong really fast. So he said he took him on a walk and he just began to talk to him. And he said, buddy, we want you to live here and we want to give you a good life, but you've got to at least follow some rules. At the very minimum, you've got to respect my wife if you're going to live in this house. And my friend went to the room and he said that he took everything out of it. I mean, he stripped it down. No TV, no books, nothing. Filled up all the holes with you know putty so the room looked kind of ugly. And all that was left in the room was just a mattress on the, on the floor. And he said it went by a couple weeks like that. The behavior really did not get any better. And my friend was at work one day and again he felt like the Holy Spirit told him that he was to go and fix the room up better than it was before. 
And he thought, well, if I do that, the kid's just going to destroy it. If I go in there and I fix the room up better than it is before, how's that going to help anything? But he listened and he went and he, he fixed up the room way better than it ever was before. He painted it brand new with colors. He got uh, not just a new bed in the room, but a cool bed. He got a Batman bed. Uh, and and if, if you don't like Batman, then you're the problem uh, because Batman's the best superhero. And so this was a really cool room, really cool bed. He's shaking his head. He doesn't know. Batman is Jesus' favorite superhero. And it's in the Bible. Second opinions. <laughs> But he fixed this room up awesome for this kid while he was, while he was away with uh, his mom, or my friend's wife at the time. And uh, so when the kid came back, he said he couldn't believe it. And the little boy, when he walked in the room, he immediately just started bawling with tears. Because he had never experienced love like that before. He had never experienced somebody going above and beyond for him. Not just above and beyond for him, but paying for his own mistakes. He had never experienced grace, friends. My friend said it was like a switch flipped. From that moment on, the little boy, obviously not perfect, still a little boy, but he began to respect and to obey in a way that he had never had before. You know why? He was born again. He had a change of nature in that moment because he had experienced grace. This is what the gospel is. We come and we realize we have broken every one of God's laws. We have destroyed the room with our sin. And Jesus Christ comes and he not only pays for it, but he fixed the room up better than it was before. I have rewards that I do not deserve, rewards that I cannot even comprehend because of the grace of Jesus Christ. And if I look at that grace, you know what it does? It changes the way I relate to the world. Amen. Let me pray for you. Father God, this is such a difficult concept to understand. How the law is still active for us as Christians, but the law is not something we force ourselves to do. It is something that you are doing within us. You've started a good work in us and you will finish it. And the way that we experience the change in our lives is not by trying harder, but by looking and believing deeper in the grace that you've offered us in your son, Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you can speak to the hearts of the people today in a way that I cannot. And friends, if you would, with your eyes closed, head bowed, just take about 10 seconds. Say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me through this message? Jesus, I pray that you give us the courage to obey what you've called us to do. It's in your name that I pray. Amen.